Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 53. Law and Disorder. Rhode Island. Remember that this is an independent podcast which relies on listener support. To help out, then please consider signing up for membership. For only $4.99 per month, you can get access to a new, exclusive, premium feed every two weeks. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. In our last episode, we looked at the creation of the Rhode Island government in 1647. Three years previously, Providence had been granted a patent by Parliament, and Roger Williams had taken his time in setting up a workable system. He had managed to get together the support of Gorton at Warwick and from Aquidneck to be able to set up a general assembly which would include all the shareholders in the colony, and then a board of eight elected officials. Rhode Island was surrounded by potential threats to her unique way of life, and the townships would be all the safer for uniting together. This was where we left things last week. Today, we begin to examine the speed with which things began to go wrong. First of all, it was very quickly realised that their citizens were unsuited to work as legislatures. They spent a year at it and got nowhere. It was a failure. Since direct democracy had failed, they tried a shift towards representative democracy. The General Assembly voted to transfer its powers to a body of representatives, six from each town, who tried to include popular democracy into their actions. They experimented with versions of referendums, but none of these proved successful either. What followed was a reaction against the central government. It wasn't getting anything done, so why not just return power back to where it belonged? With the towns themselves. Rights were given back to the towns, they were allowed to design their own constitutions and their own legal structures. They were then allowed to elect town councillors to administer government. And not even this worked, because some towns chose simply not to have certain bits of the government or elected people who didn't want to serve. Coddington refused to serve as president. Public authority crumbled. The new government had been established in 1647. By 1648, Rhode Island was falling into chaos. Fighting started between the various towns. One man was actually killed. Warwick feared that Massachusetts would take advantage of this infighting. And then, out of nowhere... Coddington appeared with a document that he claimed had been sent over from the Council of State in England, which re-established the government of Aquidneck and named him President for Life, while, at the same time, he sent his friends to London to try and get the 1644 patent rescinded. This horrified the mainland towns, who sent Williams to London in order to reaffirm the patent, and selected Gorton to be their president, replacing Nicholas Easton, who had no intention of resigning. There were now three separate governments in operation. 
This was how things continued until into the 1650s. In September 1652, Coddington's agents returned from London. They reported that the 1644 patent was still in effect. The men on a quidneck took this to believe that Easton's government was the legitimate government and mostly sided with him. Some on the mainland did too, but there were many who viewed Gorton as the remnant of the official government. Nobody supported Coddington, though he was determined to revive his government. He met with agents from Boston and New Netherland in an effort to secure their support, but nobody wanted him back. This state of affairs lasted for two years, until Williams's own return to the colony in 1654. By this stage, the Equidneck government of Easton was prevailing due to its vastly greater resources, and Williams persuaded most on the mainland that had already come around to this view, that they would be better served by uniting with Easton rather than fighting under Gorton. Having reunited the colony, Williams was elected president, and he spent three years bringing harmony to the region. With some help from Oliver Cromwell, he was even able to get Coddington to cease trying to set up a counter-government, and finally join the administration. By 1658, 14 years after the first patent had been given, it could be said that Rhode Island had something resembling a government. They had support from the Protectorate of Cromwell in England, and Massachusetts's persecution of Quakers had reminded them of the value of religious liberty, and the conflict between the Indians and the United Colonies of New England reminded them of how fragile their little slice of the world was. They finally established a judicial system, and were able to enforce laws. The government had authority. Things were looking good, and then it all went wrong. In September 1658, Oliver Cromwell died, and with him fell the Protectorate. Charles II restored the monarchy in 1660, and the position of Rhode Island suddenly became rather uncomfortable. The patent of 1644, which the colony was based on, had been issued during the English Civil War by Parliament. The monarchy had nothing to do with it. The colony had been backed by Oliver Cromwell, and it is not hard to understand why Rhode Island may not be Charles II's favourite of all the New World colonies. Charles II was proclaimed king by Rhode Island about three months after the news reached them of events in England. It wasn't the quickest reaction in the world, but it was a quicker response than the other Puritan New England colonies. This was a good start, but Rhode Island very quickly ran into problems caused by inactivity. Rhode Island wasn't the only colony that ran into issues by not having royal approval. Connecticut had the same problem. Connecticut had a bit more going for it though, such as the support of the other New England colonies, while Rhode Island was something of a pariah. Rhode Island had an agent in London named John Clark, but the Rhode Islanders gave him no instructions or resources with which to act until very late in 1661. By this stage, it was, to some extent, already too late. 
Connecticut had acted first, and their agent in London, John Winthrop the Younger, was already very advanced in the process of securing a royal charter for that colony. Winthrop the Younger had pressed to secure the eastern border of Connecticut as Narragansett Bay, effectively taking control of mainland Rhode Island. But all he was able to achieve was a promise that when the Rhode Island proposal was made, that it would be treated fairly. A very frustrated Clark spent half a year fighting to get the Rhode Island case going. His case was turned down for hearing by the Privy Council, and who knows what might have happened had Connecticut not had other matters to deal with. Connecticut did not like Rhode Island, and if the Royal Charter could grant her providence, then all the better for Connecticut and the other New England colonies. But while dealing with Connecticut was the only real issue that Clark had to deal with, Winthrop had many problems in determining the exact jurisdiction of Connecticut. For instance, there were issues on Long Island. Long Island had been torn between the Dutch and the English for some time, and as the Dutch left the New World, it wasn't exactly clear how Long Island would enter the system. The Long Islanders wanted to be part of Connecticut. Plymouth had some claim to the land. While all this was going on, the English were dealing with the Dutch and were about to invade and bring about the creation of the province of New York, which claimed all the islands along the Long Island Sound, including Long Island itself. It would be decided in 1664 that Long Island belonged to New York. But for the moment, it was something Connecticut was fighting for. It was also fighting for New Haven. New Haven was sandwiched between New York and Connecticut. It was small, it was isolated, its land wasn't brilliant, and it had a political structure which didn't encourage new arrivals. It was desired by Connecticut, although it had no wish to be a mere piece of its more powerful neighbour. In the grand scheme of things for Connecticut, Long Island and New Haven were more important battles to fight than Rhode Island, and so it was agreed that Rhode Island could keep her territory on the mainland. The initial charter for Connecticut was granted in 1662, but it would take until 1664 for it to be determined that Long Island belonged to New York, but that Connecticut was allowed to absorb New Haven. Without the interfering power of Winthrop the Younger, Clark was finally able to advance his charter and it received official confirmation in July 1663. Interestingly, the charter gave the newly created governor and company of the English colony of Rhode Island and Providence plantations land to the east. The charter vaguely defined the eastern border as three miles east of Narragansett Bay, which included land that had traditionally belonged to Plymouth. And with that, the colony of Rhode Island was formally created. The battle for the borders was by no means over, even though it had been effectively decided. Connecticut was upset with the actions of Winthrop the Younger. They said they had granted him no permission to make concessions, and would spend the greater part of the next 40 years trying to annex the land he had given up. Although the matter would not be decided for good until a meeting by the Privy Council in 1727. The disagreement with Plymouth, and later Massachusetts, 
over the eastern border of Rhode Island would take even longer, and that matter would not be resolved until 1747, a whole 84 years after the charter had been granted. The mode of government in Rhode Island was altered by the charter. Powers of the magistrates were increased. It was determined that every May, the freemen would elect a governor and a deputy in addition to ten assistants. They would meet at least twice a year with the representatives from the towns in a general assembly. All the original towns would have four representatives, aside from Newport, which would have six. Newly created towns would have two. There were other benefits to this official recognition, diplomatically. Rhode Island was still the black sheep of the New England family, but it could no longer be bullied to quite the same extent. Its citizens were protected and had the right to travel in other colonies. Massachusetts would have to finally stop persecuting its citizens. It had many standard colonial governmental features, such as laws needing to go along with English law as far as possible. It was also granted land regulation relatively free of old medieval relics, and it had complete freedom of judgment and conscience, reflecting its culture of religious toleration. A few alterations were made by the Rhode Islanders, such as the distribution of magistrates. It was concerned about how many were given to a quidneck, and so it was changed to give five representatives from Newport, three from Providence, and two from all other towns. There was debate about whether the legislature should be bicameral or not. It was decided to go with the single chamber, although that would change in 1696. The magistrates served both as a war council and as a judicial council, in addition to advising the governor. The assembly was a legislature, but it also appointed some officers and served as a court of appeals. The old offices were kept, but now appointed by the assembly rather than directly by the freemen. All in all, it was a more powerful central government than had existed previously, but despite the conditions of the charter, a great deal of power still lay in the hands of the towns. What was created was, in essence, a federal structure. It is a theme that keeps coming back, which is certainly of interest when you consider the role that federalism will play in the wider history of the United States, although it must be noted that there were still roles to be played by England. The central government had little power commercially, instead being a part of the English commercial web. Think the Navigation Acts. But despite these weaknesses, it is undeniable that a colony genuinely existed in Rhode Island. Now that we have brought Rhode Island, and indeed most of New England, into the 1660s, I want to turn back towards the creation of New York and Delaware next time out. Once we have these states set up as players in the game, we can confidently turn towards King Philip's War, what the North had to deal with while the South was preoccupied with Bacon's Rebellion. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then remember to check us out online. You know the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. 
that is the place to go if you want to sign up for membership. You can continue the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and on Twitter at history Jamie. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The address is the history of podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.